Salo Falava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Coming up, an academic looks at what the US security deals might mean for PNG. Also, threats of climate change are things that we can't deal with immediately, but these other threats we can deal with immediately. Damaged coral reefs in Kiribati are on the mend, and later on, I think it's a good selection of players that we have across the board. We check in with Fiji on their preparations for the Nepal World Cup. A new security deal the United States has signed with Papua New Guinea will inevitably make the country more militarised. Last week, the PNG Parliament was called on to ratify the Shiprider Agreement and the Defence Cooperation Agreement signed last month in Port Moresby by the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and PNG Defence Minister, Windaki. Don Wiseman spoke with a University of PNG political scientist currently studying at the Australian National University, Michael Kabuni, and began by asking him if the deal is good for Papua New Guineans. Well, there are two sides to everything. I think much of the debate is driven by misinformation, a lack of information, and the government being very secretive about the deal and not releasing the information earlier. So, yeah, when you look at a deal, part of it comes with what they call the ship rider agreement, which allows U.S. and PNG marine military personnel to ride on each other ship, but mostly for PNG Navy and observers to ride on the U.S. Navy. And much of the concerns around PNG's marine security has been its huge exclusive economic zone. So it's about 2.7 million kilometers square. And Papua New Guinea hasn't had a ability or capacity to manage its borders. So we really don't know what goes on on the fringes of Papua New Guinea's borders, marine border that is. The recent increase in drugs being found in PNG drugs like cocaine, 500 kilograms of cocaine bust in PNG, I think it was in 2020, and methamphetamine, increasing cases of methamphetamine found in PNG, and these are not natural products that are naturally found in PNG. So we know it's coming from overseas. PNG is acting as a transit kind of point for these illicit drugs to enter, mostly because of unregulated borders. So the deal in itself, in a way, helps Papua New Guinea address these challenges that Papua New Guinea hasn't had a, had a capacity to address before. Because of the size of that EEZ, if the Americans are going to effectively police it, they're going to have to have so many vessels there. It's, it sounds crazy. Yeah, that's the other side of the coin, right? U.S. history around the world is whenever they sign a deal with another country, especially if it's a, it's a developing poor country, that region becomes heavily militarized whether it's in the Middle East, even if it's some country relatively uh, powerful like Pakistan, or even in the Pacific Islands, you can take Guam, for instance. It becomes heavily militarized. And it is naive to think that Australia, and especially the United States, is, is coming into the Pacific with the sole purpose of helping the Pacific. And I don't know what it is. I, I think the politicians, especially PNG politicians, are either too naive or the benefits are just too much for them to ignore. So the deal between Papua New Guinea and the United States comes with more than 400 million USD uh, support. This is money 
that James Marape wouldn't tamp down. It's money he needs. And for that purpose, uh, studying PNG politics and uh, the, the behavior of PNG politicians for the last five years. When I heard that it comes to 450 million USD, I knew from the outset that this deal would be signed. And not only for the benefits, and as, as an analyst, I see the benefit of securing PNG's borders. Uh, but even if it wasn't for PNG's borders and securing its security, this deal would have been signed because of the amount of money that's attached to it. This money is presumably going to go into these camps, which are effectively going to be little bits of America scattered around PNG, aren't they? There's no immediate benefit that's going to accrue to PNG from that money. Well, part of the part of the agreement is the U.S. military will have unlimited access to the main ports of PNG, so both wharves and and marine ports, uh, as well as airports and airstrips. And there is a massive infrastructure going on at the moment in in Manus that will allow U.S. Uh, Navy to park. So you're right, the the money we we don't know the breakdown of the funds, how much would be used for guaranteeing the security, the marine borders of Papua New Guinea, and how much would be used for infrastructure. Yeah, like I said, if you look at the experience of the United States elsewhere, you're probably right that a huge chunk of that money uh, will go into building these infrastructures so that the United States can access it. There's a lot of emphasis on Manus Island, which is very far north of the rest of PNG, isn't it? An old American Air Force base there. Yeah, you're right. Much of what's happening is is shaped by history, especially the Second World War and the Cold War and what happened in the 1960s with Malaysia and Indonesia, or what came to be known as Confrontasi. And PNG, among all Pacific Island countries, proved to be a very important battle zone in reversing uh, the Japanese forces during the Cold War. Uh, it was regarded as the buffer zone between communism and Australia. Uh, PNG was... This country bordering all the Southeast Asian countries falling under communism. And Manus in particular is an important strategic piece of real estate in the Pacific. It proved to be very important in the Japanese, U.S. Uh, and Allied war in the 1940s, 1942. So, you know, if there's going to be any island uh, that, let's say, China had to secure to be able to advance south uh, and into the Pacific, that would be Manus. Uh, and it's also this island, if you wanted to build up your military forces and installation and to guarantee the security of the southern uh, hemisphere, it has to be Manus. So, yeah, Manus is becoming this very important island in Papua New Guinea, both Australia and, and China is also interested in that. So there is talks that apart from the U.S. and, and, and Australia building a naval base in Manus, China is building a commercial one. But when you look at the and this applies to not only Manus, but, but the Pacific. When China gets involved in building wharves, though it's, you know, it appears to be a wharf for commercial ships to park, it's built with the equipment to all military naval ships. So even though it appears to be a commercial infrastructure or just another infrastructure, the equipment that's used, the measurement, the specifications that goes into building this, can easily accommodate a military military seat. That was University of PNG political scientist Michael Carboni, and we'll hear more on his take on the U.S. security deals later on in the week. 
coral reefs in the southern line islands in Kiribati are bouncing back well. After being decimated in an El Nino warming event between 2015 and 2016, National Geographic's pristine seas team visited the site, located just south of the equator, in 2021 and revisited last month on the first stop of a five year Pacific expedition. Dr. Alan Friedlander, who was the chief scientist on board, speaks to Caleb Fotheringham about what he's seen. Firstly, is it okay if you just tell me what you observed in the Southern Line Islands, which is your first stop on the Pristine Seas expedition? Right. So we just started the first leg of our our five-year expedition around the Pacific. So it was pretty exciting returning to the Southern Line Islands. It was one of our first expeditions 15 years ago um, in 2009. And we were fortunate enough to go back two years ago after the massive bleaching event in 2015, 2016, where half all the corals died. And we saw amazing recovery two years ago, and we came back now, and it's continuing to recover, but nature's always surprising us because there's like, as opposed to a forest where you have like a climax community, the coral reefs, even though you think of corals as these stagnant things, they're constantly evolving and fighting for space. And so everything's always in flux. And so we came back two years later and things are slightly different than they were just two years ago. Carl had this amazing ability to recover. So, you know, um, although corals are doing very badly all around the world, this is a, you know, a really good hope spot. It's a sign of, of recovery that not all the corals are going to go away in, in the immediate future. Yeah, that's incredibly refreshing to hear a positive news story surrounding coral. Why do you think it's recovered so well? We know that local human impacts like overfishing, sedimentation, shoreline development, all those things um, provide these chronic stressors on coral reefs. Um, the overall arching you know, threats of climate change are things that we can't deal with immediately, but these other threats we can deal with immediately. The Southern Line Islands are remote, so there's no people there. So we don't have any local threats. So, the, you know, there's no overfishing, no land-based pollution, no sedimentation. These places have the ability to recover and be resilient on, on their own without um, direct human influence. So that's that's the take-home message for places where there are people is, um, you know, we can't do a lot about climate change in the short term. But we should worry about things we can control in the short term, like overfishing and pollution and sedimentation. And just to be clear, the Southern Line Islands, that's part of a marine protected area. Right. So they're part of the country of Kiribati. It was two days by boat from Papiete, Tahiti, so a really remote place. They are marine protected areas around the islands themselves, so there's supposed to be no fishing. Although we, we see a few signs of poaching for some of the sharks, but... Um, you know, the big groupers, the big parrotfish, the Napoleon rafts are all, all there in abundance. And the reefs, like I said, have recovered dramatically. It's, it was really stunning to see. We are obviously expecting more bleaching events like this one that happened in 2015-2016. Are marine protected areas the solution for coral to bounce back from these bleaching events? I mean, marine protected areas are not a a panacea, right? They're not the silver bullet for everything. But, you know, they are incredibly helpful. But we we can't just manage marine protected areas and forget about everything else outside. We have to manage fisheries. 
effectively. We have to control sedimentation and pollution, so we have to have better coastal zone management as well. So it's part of the solution, but it doesn't work in isolation from everything else. So it has to be a combination of wise fisheries management, um, better management of the coastal zone, and marine protected areas all in concert with one another will bring marine ecosystems back and provide us the services that we like, like food security and shoreline protection from storms and all the other things, cultural, um, you know, the cultural connection that all of us have to the ocean, particularly coastal communities. And this is a five-year expedition. Do you expect to find anything as positive as what you found in Kiribati? Yeah, we're pretty excited about this five-year expedition. We've been doing pristine seas. It's been in existence for 15 years. We've had 40 expeditions. I've been on nearly every one of them from pole to pole and every place in between. And every single time you're surprised by by places. So I don't think the Southern Line Islands of Kiribati is a one-off. I think there are a lot of other places out there like that. So we're doing a combination of looking at remote places where there are no people, but also managing places and trying to help support local community efforts, because this is where the people benefit the most from coral reefs and healthy marine ecosystems in general, right? The, the food security, the cultural connectivity, the recreational um, opportunities, all, you know, all these things that we expect from healthy oceans need to be there. So it's a combination of, yeah, we all love to go to places where there are no people and dive in places where no one's ever been before. It's a pretty exciting opportunity for us. Um, and, you know, we'll continue to do that. But also engaging with local communities and supporting local efforts for better marine stewardship is really uh, the overarching goal of the, of the five-year expedition. Fiji's national netball team, Pearls, are also excited about the opportunity to play at the upcoming World Cup in South Africa alongside their neighbours, Tonga. They have a team comprised of young and experienced players. RNZ Pacific senior sports journalist Elias Tora spoke to netball Fiji president Vivian Costa and began by asking her about the squad who were announced just days ago. Uh, we have a mix of uh, experience and players. Um, our youngest player is actually 18 years old, uh, so of course this will be her first World Cup. And then we we have those who have been uh, to, to more than one World Cup. So one player is actually going to be uh, in her third World Cup, uh, which is fantastic. And, and with that mix, we, I think it's a it's a good good selection of players that we have um, across the board. So the third World Cup will be Unaisi uh, Rauluni. And uh, the first World Cup at 18 years old is Elina Jokimbao. You have some um, um, overseas-based players who, who are in the, the 15 that has been named? Uh, yes, we do. We've got um, two from the UK. So there's Ndim Bolokoro, who's uh, with the British Army. Um, there's also... Maria Lutua Rusivakula, uh, who's also based in the UK. We have Anna Moy, who's based in New Zealand, and uh, Navinia Sivo, who's based in Australia, who's uh, a non-travelling reserve. Sorry, we also have Clara Nawai, who's based in, in New Zealand. Uh, with, with, uh, with another squad being named and uh, the Final 15 confirmed, how's the preparation going to go from now till you go to, to South Africa? 
Um, well, you know, the preparations uh, are always ongoing. Um, of course, the intensity has increased uh, just because we now have the final um, 15 to work with. And so it's, it's uh, you know, six days a week, more than uh, at least three training sessions. But you also have the um, physio work. You've got activation work. So there's, there's quite a, a few things to do. It's a bit more concentrated and intense now uh, with, um, you know, a month and a bit to go. The, the World Cup is part of this year's commitments. You have the Pacific Games coming up also later on in the year. Uh, players who missed out, uh, what message can Netball Fiji uh, give them at this time? Um, well, you know, we've, we've uh, already extended, uh, extended our appreciation to all the players who put their hand up for selection. It took a great deal of commitment and effort on their part, and we're very appreciative of it. Um, and we've also shared with them that the, this was, the World Cup is one uh, event But as you said, we've got the Pacific Games at the end of the year. Uh, for those players who qualify, we've got the Netball World Youth Cup in 2025. And we have a few players who qualify for that. And so there's, you know, there's continuous work to be done. And uh, we're, we're keeping everyone uh, in, in our bigger extended squad. We're also adding to that squad. So, for example, for the Pacific Games, we will be looking at our national championships, uh, which is... Um, at the end of August, early September, um, to, to pick uh, players from that. Currently, we have a, a Super League that's uh, uh, taking place. And again, we're identifying players from there. So it's, uh, it's a continuous effort to, to have a, a squad in place. Uh, because we know that there's more than one event uh, and one competition uh, to come. You have Tonga, probably the last uh, the last one for today. You have Tonga first up at the at the World Cup. You've met them last year, this year. How does that look for for Fiji Pearls going into uh, the World Meet? I think we have the advantage of actually knowing um, how they play. And as you said, we have met them. We haven't beaten them yet, so that's the challenge to ourselves. But And, and it is our first game at the World Cup, as it is theirs. And so for us, it, it's taking it one game at a time. So yes, we, we go in with a little bit more knowledge about Tonga than maybe other teams. Uh, but we also know that um, you know it's not going to be an easy game. It will be tough. And we'll just give it the, 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 the credit and purpose that it, uh, that it deserves and, and can only do our best. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rndi.com slash programs. You can also download us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts from. So from myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, tofa soi kua.